worship and the battlefield. So this is what we are going to talk about. Um, But first, we need to define the term. What is worship? So I'm going to start by telling you what worship is not. (laughs) So worship is not singing songs. Now, it's easy to get confused and think that, right? Because the way that we divide our service up, the way we do things, even if if I were to show you the little sheet that we print out to give, like, the the service order, we, we start in the morning and there's, like, setup. And people come and they make sure everything is okay and the chairs are out and the tech team is here and they do sound checks and the worship team rehearses. And then we have prayer time. And, and, and very few of us are here for that. Only folk who are usually involved in the service at some point in time. But this is a time when anybody is welcome to come and we pray for the service and for what's going to come. And then we have a call to worship. And, and very few of us are here for that as well. Um, but we're getting better, kind of, sometimes, maybe. Um, but we have a call to worship. <laughs> and that's where, you know, someone stands up and invites us all to come and worship the Lord, to come inside and to begin. And then we have what we call worship. And the worship team leads us in songs. And so it's easy to think that that is just what worship is, because then worship ends. And then we have greeting. And then we have a sermon, right? And so we compartmentalize things. But worship is not just singing songs. Singing songs is no more worship than, I mean, you could sing good songs. You can sing songs about God and still not be worshiping. You can sing songs about God and be worshiping him no more than if you were in your car after service listening to your favorite non-Christian, non-whatever station, and your song came on and you were singing it probably, maybe, and sometimes, if some of you are honest, better and with more passion than you just sang the songs about Jesus. Um, But it will be no more worship than that. Worship is not just singing songs. Anybody can sing songs. Anybody can worship, but everybody who sings songs ain't worshiping. We understand. Worship is not culturally specific. Now, see, this, this is, um, is a real tricky one in a church like ours. But I'm going to tell you today that I have been reading through the scriptures. I have not ever seen cultural worship. There are two types of worship described in the Bible. True worship and false worship. Period. See, in a church like ours, and especially in a church like ours, it's easy to think that worship is about our cultural expressions and how we show God who we are based on, it's easy to think that because we talk about it a lot, right? If you grew up in a monoracial church, I can, I, I can speak from the, a, a black church experience. Now, I didn't grow up in a black church, but I've spent, I mean, at this point, I've been saved for a very long time. So a good chunk of that was in a black church. And I can tell you that one thing I never heard discussed was black worship. We, we, it, just, it never came up. There was never a church meeting where people talked about, like, how can we be more authentically black in our worship? Like, that's not a thing. I am going to dare to assume that if you grew up in a white church or in a Korean church or in a Latino, if you grew up in whatever kind of mono-racial, mono-ethnic church you may have grown up in, you probably didn't have much conversation about fill-in-the-blank type of worship. It was just worship. But in churches like this, we have lots of conversations about who's included and what our worship is reflective of. Now, these are good conversations. So don't don't walk away and say, see, that we should just be worshiping Jesus. That's right. No, because those are important conversations. There are ways that our cultures influence how we worship. 
but worship is not culturally specific. There's no such thing in the Bible as Reubenite worship versus Benjamite worship, right? You never heard anybody say, well, the Simeons worship in this way and the the Gadites, they worship, and that's not a thing. Now, here is what is a thing. It's true that the people of Israel were a people who were divided, not divided, well, at some point divided in bad ways, but initially divided by God. They were in separate tribes. And those tribes would have had different cultural expressions. And we know this because in the book of Leviticus, when God is talking about the priestly garments, that the priest will go in when he performs the acts of worship, the sacrifices, God talks about specific pieces that would be on that garment that would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I can imagine that they, those tribes formed different customs. They had different ways of doing things. They had different, maybe even dialects, ways that they started to sound after a while. They were not just one homogenous group of people, but their worship was just worship. It was defined by God. It was just worship. It's easy for us to think of the children of Israel as just being this one homogenous group of people because this was a people who was in exile. And see, we know a thing about what exile can do to you. It can erase particularities, right? And so when God created them, they were Simeonites and Gadites. Yes, all the children of Israel, they were God's people, but they had particularities. But in exile, they just became the children of Israel, just Jewish people, right? Like maybe in exile, you just became Asian. You came here and you were Korean, and then somehow along the way, you were just Asian, or you were just black. Now, you grew up and you were Caribbean, and you heard some things, and you had a language, you had a way of being, but then when you walk out into the street, you're, 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 you're black. You're white, you're Latino or Hispanic, whichever you prefer, right? So exile has a way of erasing particularities. God says, I created culture and I love it. And your worship may absolutely reflect the beauty of your culture, but your worship is just worship. Your worship is just worship. Another thing that worship is not. It is not an emotional outburst. Anybody can be emotional. Many people are not emotional at all. I will pray for you. (laughs) An emotional outburst is no more worship than, you know, shouting at a White Sox game. People get emotional about all kinds of things. I, I mean, by that definition, the road rage that the Lord has delivered me from, right, that was not... That's not, I'm emotional, I'm saying something, that's certainly far from worship. Worship is not an emotional outburst. It will absolutely involve your emotions, because it involves your whole self. But don't ever mistake just some outpouring, some show of emotion as worship. I can stand here and I can sing to Jesus as loud as I want to. I could run around this church, I can do all kinds of stuff, and it'd be no more worship then if I were to go to a club, I have not, I've been to a club like three times in my life, but I'm going to try to give this illustration. And if I were to go to a club and hear my song and just, you know, do what people do in clubs, I'm not going to, that was a bad moment. <laughs> that, it would be no more worship than that. Or it could be no more worshipful than that. Worship is not an emotional 
outbursts. Worship may, it will involve all of these things. It may involve you singing songs. It will reflect the culture that God has given you. It will absolutely engage your emotions, but it is not any one of those things. So what is worship? What is Christian worship? Christian worship is ascribing worth to God. At the core, when we worship, we are saying, we are declaring inside and then expressing outside that God is the most true thing, that he is the most real thing, that he is the heaviest and the weightiest thing, and at the same time, his yoke is easy. Worship is ascribing worth to God. And so there are two important things that we need to understand about worship from Scripture. First of all, as John chapter 4 tells us when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, worship is rooted in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? You need to know the truth of who God is to worship. I can sing songs all day long. I can lift my hands and I can shout. I can stand and do nothing. If I don't know the truth of who God is, if my worship, if what's coming out of my mouth, if what my body is doing is not reflecting something that is deep inside of me, and that is that the Holy Spirit is in me, teaching me, leading me, guiding me, that God will never leave me or forsake me, that he is good. If it's not built on truth, then it is not worship. Um, I love the way John Piper talks about this. He says, right worship, good worship, pleasing worship depends on a right mental grasp of the way God really is. Truth. If we worship an idol of our own creation, we are not really worshiping God. Worship also depends on a right spiritual or emotional or affectional heart grasp of God's supreme value. So true worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature, and it's a right valuing of God's worth. It is valuing or treasuring God above all things. That's at the heart of what worship is. The second thing that we see in Scripture, and it's related to this, is that worship is embodied. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that we ought to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. Now, see, when we hear that, the word, the language of sacrifice is different, right? Because we don't, we don't, none of us, I imagine, I could be wrong, but probably none of us grew up in a context where people made actual sacrifices, where you would bring an animal somewhere to a priest who would then sacrifice it to God. I'm If you did, that's fine, but uh, you probably didn't. But the first people who heard this, that language would have meant something different to them. Because when he said, present your body as a living sacrifice, their minds would have understood what he was talking about. They would have been thinking about that sacrificial system where rams and bulls and sheep and pigeons were brought into a temple and where a priest would have sacrificed them on an altar before God. And then there would have been a burnt offering. The sacrificial system, you know, it was bloody. I mean, because you had to 
throw blood all over the place. It, you know, there, there are times when, when reading through the Old Testament, I'm like, ah, Jesus. Um, that's <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> but they, their minds would have gone there. They would have understood that. They might have thought about Abraham being told to take Isaac up to a hill and lay him on an altar and sacrifice him before God, and God providing a ram in the bushes. Like, their minds would have gone there, a living sacrifice. So that tells me a couple things. It tells me not only is worship embodied, but sometimes you might not feel like it. I'm just going to imagine, I'm going to step out on a limb and say no bull ever thought to themselves, you know what, today is a day that I want to be sacrificed Like, it's just, that's not something that you just, like, yes, sacrifice. Like, that's not how, no, nothing wants that. No thing, no person wants that. Sometimes you might not want to. Sometimes you might not want to lift up your hands. Sometimes you might not want to open your mouth. You might not feel like standing. Sometimes you might not be in a place where you feel like ascribing worth to God. Sometimes your spirit needs to remind your body who it belongs to. Sometimes your spirit that knows that God is worthy of all praise needs to remind your body to get up and praise him. Worship involves your body. When we look at scripture, we see descriptions of what worship will be like. Believers sing, they shout, they dance. David danced himself out of his clothes. That is some praise right there. That's some worship. The man, the king danced himself out of his clothes. We see people standing before the Lord. We see people falling down before God, laying prostrate before God, bowing. It's embodied, shouting. I love that Psalm, I will awaken the dawn. My worship will awaken. You might not know he's good, but you will not be able to say when you leave this place that you didn't hear somebody say he's good because I'm about to shout how good he is. Worship is embodied. It is expressive. Now, I bet somebody is thinking, now hold on. You just said that worship is not culturally specific, but what you are describing sounds a lot like black worship. And I I believe it in my heart. I know. I know how we think. That sounds like black worship. This is not, that's not how we, I worship the Lord. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. I think, and you you can disagree, but what I have seen is that people, who have experienced oppression, have a particular way of worshiping the Lord. It's not black worship. It's a whole lot of folk all over this world whose worship is very, very expressive. It's loud. If you walked past on a Sunday morning, you would think, what is happening in there? Worship among people who have experienced some kind of oppression it it tends to look a particular kind of way because it's not that oppression is special or makes you special, but oppression has a way of making you particularly sensitive and receptive to the truth of who God is. It has a way of making you particularly desperate 
for a God who can save and rescue and deliver. And that's not just like theoretical. That means like literally, God, I need you to save me. Literally, God, I need you to heal me and to deliver me. And so, yes, black worship. I've heard Korean worship gets a little loud and rowdy. There's a whole lot of ways of worshiping God among people who understand oppression and bondage that sounds and looks a particular kind of way. So um, uh, when I, I, I'm going to show you all my my non-manuscript. This is about eight pages. (laughs) Now, I don't preach from eight pages. When I preach, I write out every word (laughs) that I am going to say. My sermons are usually at least 25 pages long because I write it all out. And as I was preparing this sermon, I heard the Lord say to me, you are going to preach from an outline today. I want to be free, and this is the important part to hear, I want to be free to speak through you the way I want to speak through you. Now, at the time that I heard God saying this, I was writing. And so I was about to write out what I heard God say. And I'm like, I want, I want to be free. Like, that, that's not right. You are are always free to do whatever you want to do. That can't be what you are saying to me. And so I wanted to literally stop and write, um, God wants me to be free. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, no, I want to be free to speak through you the way I want to speak through you. So God reminded me of Jesus in the gospel, who wasn't able to heal people in his own hometown. And this, and this is a passage that has always bothered me. And he says he couldn't because their faith, it, there, it was just too small. He could not perform the miracles he wanted to perform. And I remember that I would always struggle with that. Like, can, can, we, can we keep you from doing what you want to do? Who can stop God from doing what God wants to do? Here's the thing. God is kind. He's so kind. And he won't force his way. And so, yes, he could do whatever he wants to do through me. But he said, I'm kind. And so I'm letting you know that I want to be free to speak through you the way I want to speak through you. How does this relate to worship? Have you ever heard stories, and maybe some of you all have even seen it, of people who go to other countries to do missions, and they see God moving in miraculous, powerful ways, in ways that we never see or experience in this place. You hear about people like going in and having limbs that are cut off and limbs growing back. You hear about people in worship standing up and walking and running. Like you hear about these miraculous things and we sit here and say, well, I, you know, I'm praying for, you know, for my ear infection to go away or whatever it is, whatever you, I've never seen God move in that way. Why? Because see, some of us, are so bound by the belief that we got this, that we're smart enough, that we're good enough, that we got enough money, we're secure enough, that we can work it out. And so God is not free to move the way he wants to move. Worship is not culturally specific. There is nothing about oppression that is happy or nice, but it has a way of making you particularly desperate for God to move, and particularly aware of his fingerprints in your life. And so when I finished my exam, and I was in here last Sunday, 
And Marquita had the nerve, <laughs> the audacity to play that song that she did right before I had to come up and pray. I could barely hold it together because I was very aware that I didn't have anything to do with getting through that exam, but that Jesus was there. And so, hey, <laughs> I can't help but shout hallelujah. That does not, that's not going to allow me to just stand there and say, God, you're good, you're good, hallelujah. Oh, no, no. When you are keenly aware of how good God is, you will open your mouth and you will shout. When you are keenly aware of how desperate you are for him, you will stand up and you will lift up your arms because you will be reaching for your daddy. You know what children look like when they reach for their parents, when they are desperate, when they are hurting and they say, mama, daddy, I need you. That's what your posture will be like when you believe God is who he said he is. Oppression has a particular way of making people attuned to that. But do not think that oppression is the only thing that will make you attuned to that. If you are sitting here and you are saying, I just don't, it's not how I, then my prayer for you is that you ask God to open your eyes so that you can see who he is and you can see where you need him. And he will let you feel how desperate you actually are because whether you know it or not, you are desperate for him. And I guarantee you will shout. I guarantee your worship will look different. It will sound different. You will, no one will have to encourage you to raise your hands. And so this brings us to the battlefield. In the passage in Acts, Paul tells us, uh, the writer tells us, you know, that Paul and Silas, they're, they're in, in prison um, and they're, they've been arrested. They have done something that is deeply offensive, and that is they have, Mess with somebody's money, right? They cast out this demon and this family is incensed because now they will no longer be making money on this child's back. And so they take Paul and Silas to the authorities and say, these people need to go. They are beaten. They are imprisoned. And they're not just imprisoned. It tells us that they were taken to the inner cell and then also chained up. Then around midnight, it tells us that Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praying. Now, see, I, this, is, this is, it's so easy to miss this because when we think of hymns, we think of like, I don't know, Jesus, come and love us so. Like, right, like when you think of a hymn, you're not thinking about them in there making noise and stirring up some stuff. But see, I imagine them singing Psalm 57. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. See, that's the hymn I think they were singing. This is the hymn that David was singing when he was running from Saul and hid up in a cave. This is the hymn that I imagine them singing. This is a battle cry. And the text tells us that there was a violent earthquake, so violent that it shook the whole place. And everybody's chains came off. Not just Paul and Silas. 
The other prisoners were listening to them and looking at them. And when the earthquake came, everybody's chains fell off. When was the last time you worshipped somebody else's chains off? (laughs) See, here's the thing. Your worship is not just about you. Nothing in this Christian life is about you and you alone. We are the body of Christ. And so when I come here and I lift my hands and I worship my God, that's not just for me. Now, I'm going to do it, period. (laughs) But it's for all of us. Because you might be in a place where you don't believe. You might be in a place where you are struggling to see how God is good. And so you need to see my arms in the air. I might be in a place where I am struggling. I might be in a place where I am doubting God's provision, where I am doubting his love and care for me and his kindness and his grace and his mercy. I need to be able to open my eyes and see your mouth open and see you on your feet. And see your hands in the air. We worship for each other. Everybody's chains came off. And then the guard, the guard who is now terrified because he had one job. (laughs) His one job was to make sure that these people don't go. And he did his one job well. The man brought him into the inner cell. He done chained up the feet. And so for him to open his eyes and, my God, the door is open, what? And he comes and he says, what must I do to be saved? When was the last time your worship brought somebody to Christ? When was the last time your worship caused somebody else to fall down and say, what do I need to have that? What must I do to know the God that is causing you to stand up and shout and sing like that? Because I know your situation. I know what you're going through, and, but what, what, what must I do to have that? See, worship is powerful. Let me tell you who else hears. Your enemy. Your actual enemy. See, we don't talk about the enemy that often. And that's, that's you know, because he ain't, but, eh. but he's real. And he's pursuing you. And he desires your life. And so when you stand up and you praise God and you worship him, hmm, when Marquita can stand here in the midst of the things that she has gone through this year and she can worship her God, she's not worshiping out of a place of this, everything is so happy. I just love everything that's going on in my life. She's worshiping from a place of God, I need you and I am desperate for you and I worship you because even in the midst of this mess, you are good. And the enemy is trying everything he can to make me not believe you are good. He is doing everything he can to destroy my life. But God, you are good. And see, when you do that in the battlefields, that's war. Your enemy will flee. Your life will change. Some chains will fall from you and from your brothers and from your sisters. Worship is not just about you and yours. It's about us. And it's God's mission. It is God's heart and his desire for everything that has breath to praise the Lord. The rocks will cry out. Trees worship. 
Oceans clap their hands. Mountains bow down before God. And if you want to stand there on the sidelines with your hands folded nicely, okay, have at it. I'm not letting a rock cry out for me. So I'm going to pray for us as we prepare to take communion. And so here's the thing. This is, this is the challenge. I believe that many of us have absolutely embraced a lie. That, that the way we worship God and the way that we express ourselves, that it's, you know, it's bound up in, in, our, in our culture, our, our race, our ideas. Or the, and I don't know why I'm speaking in this particular way when I say that. Um, but we believe that lie. I'll tell you this. God has made each one of us very differently. So the kind of person that I am, if I'm happy about something, you're going to know it. If I'm sad, you're going to know it. (laughs) I am expressive in general. And so the way that I respond when I see a beautiful sunset or a movie that is funny, I'm expressive. I'm big. And so it would make sense then that the way my worship to God would look is going to be big. It makes sense that I would be prone to run around a church because that's just how I get down in my life. (laughs) That has nothing to do with the fact that I'm black. That's just who God created me to be. I'm I'm an expressive person. I get excited about lots of things, and I get excited about really small things. I get super excited about really, really small things. (laughs) That's who I am as a person. Who you are may not be that. You may be someone who is more reserved in the way that you are in general. And the way you respond to an amazing movie or a beautiful sunset or whatever the thing is that makes you respond is not big and expressive. It would make sense then that when you are worshiping God and declaring how good he is, it won't look like me. That's not going to be because you're white. That's going to just be because that's how God formed you. That's who you are. Now, sometimes you might need to push yourself to go ahead and be bigger because we can do that for Jesus. We can be outside of ourselves for Jesus. Sometimes I might need to push myself to, okay, rein it in. (laughs) Because we can do that for Jesus. We can be outside of ourselves for Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? It has nothing to do with your your race or with all the mess that we believe. It's who you are. And what we are always trying to do is get outside of ourselves and worship our God bigger and better than before. And so for anyone who might be tempted to say, I just, I'm going to, I'm shutting down. I'm shutting down. What I want to say to you is just spend a moment reading through the Psalms. Let that inform what your posture of worship looks like to God what your posture of praise looks like before God. Because that's our template, right? What we cannot let the enemy convince us of is that it is okay to just hold in our hearts how much we love God, how great we think he is. But we need to say that out loud because it's not just about you and your heart. It's about the person sitting next to you. It's about the brothers and the sisters that God has given you the people who you are connected to by the blood of Jesus and the people who you are connected to by the blood of Jesus that you don't know you're connected to yet because they haven't yet accepted the Lord. It's about all of us, the world that God so loved. So your worship is not just for you. It is an act of war. 
in exile, we declare that God is good regardless of our circumstances. In exile, we declare that God is king regardless of the powers and the principalities. In exile, we worship him even more because we're particularly attuned to how good he is. And we're particularly desperate for him to show up and show out in our lives. Amen. So, God, I pray that you would make us people who worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that each and every single person in this place, under the sound of my voice, would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. I come against every lie the enemy has told us about worship. I come against every lie the enemy has told us about how it's okay to just stand or sit or resist or whatever. God, I pray that we would be people who open our mouths according to your leading. That we would lift our arms, that we would jump, that we would shout, that we would sing, that we would dance, that we would fall down and lay prostrate, that we would sit and weep. However you lead us, Spirit, that's how we would present our bodies to you in worship. So, God, I thank you for what you are doing in this place. I thank you for the spirit of worship that has been loosed in this place. And I ask that you would continue to help us press in and desire you more and seek you earnestly and read your word and fall on our knees and pray and be reminded of the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.